Alright, hey guys, this is uh, Justin here with the long-awaited return. Uh, this is part three of a response to Mike Winger's uh, unbiblical stuff that the Catholic Church teaches. Today we're going to look at a couple of the sacraments and we'll probably wind up concluding. I think we're going to get through a fair amount today, um, about 20 minutes or so worth of his content. Uh, so this is still going to be a longer video. Uh, I've already pulled up some research notes and passages to share to at least have uh, an opening conversation about this. So we'll see how far we get. I think we'll probably stop about the time he gets to purgatory. I already have stuff on this channel about Jesus himself teaching purgatory, uh, amongst other things. And uh, I'll probably open the next video with that. I will try and be a little uh, better about getting these videos, uh, this uh, video podcast out. Um, I've had a lot of comments on the last couple of videos. Obviously, if you like what I'm doing, uh, feel free to subscribe, drop a like, leave me a comment, whatever it happens to be. And uh, I guess let's go ahead and get started. I will probably listen to Mike on about one and a half speed. Um, so if you're watching this video on one and a half speed, I hope it doesn't make it uh, terribly difficult to listen to. I always listen to videos at at least one and a half, if not two times speed. Um, but of course, if I multiply them to two times speed and then you watch my video at two times speed, it's going to make him ridiculously fast. So um, I figured that's a nice compromise is about one and a half speed. So uh, let's get started. Catholicism. The second sacrament, the second means of grace is called penance. P-E-N-A-N-C-E. -E, penance. Penance, you might think of this as going to confession. Going to confession, you go to a priest and you explain your, your sins. And this deals with two different kinds of sins, venial and mortal sins. Venial sins are the sins that you have to pay for, but you're still saved. But I've got to pay. I've got to pay for what I did here and there. And I've got to pay for it not only just in this life, but in the next life, in, in purgatory in that location. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Mortal sins are sins which, if you commit, you actually lose grace and you lose your salvation at the moment you commit a mortal sin, according to Catholicism. And then you go to the priest and you say, hey, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been this long since my last confession. I've committed venial sins. This is them. This is what they were. This is how many times. Or I committed mortal sin. This is the mortal sin. Here's how many times I did it. Da, da, da. And then... Uh, penance involves this. You have to be contrite. You have to have contrition or humility or, you know, sort of like a sorrow over sin. You have to have confession to a priest. It's got to be to a priest. Confession to someone else doesn't count. Uh, only the church, according to Roman Catholicism, has the power to forgive. Only the church does. That's why you've got to go to the priest. Now, Jesus is my high priest I go directly to, but in Roman Catholicism, I, I have all these in-betweens. It's, it's, a, it's a religion full of mediators. People get in between you and Jesus. And so... All right, let's stop there and let's just talk first off about the concept of mortal sin versus venial sin. This is something that I think a lot of people have heard when they encounter Catholicism and they really don't quite understand, you know, where this distinction comes from. Um, you know, the wages of sin is death and so it seems that all sin should be sin. Uh, all sin should, should be the same. But I think we instinctively know that that's not the case, right? Telling a little white lie uh, or... Um, let's say even even stealing a even cheating on your taxes right something that's kind of a moderate sin is probably still not quite as bad as say a murder right or or, or rape or, or something like that so there seems to be a hierarchy of sins um, and in fact we can see this in a number of places in scripture um, one of the places we can see this is in first John 5 and he says this there is sin that leads to death I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Um, depending on how you translate this, literally it's just there is some sin that is not mortal, uh, deadly. Uh, the word mortal just means life or, or death in the sense. Um, and so you think if you're, if you're in a sword fight and I strike a mortal blow, I've struck you a blow, uh, that winds up 
killing you. So uh, we see this distinction here. We see it. Uh, Jesus talks about it. At one point, he talks about the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, you say that you understand, and therefore you have sin. If you didn't understand, you would not have sin. And he's speaking about an action that is objectively immoral or objectively grave, rejecting the Son of God. Um, but he's talking about it in the context of their knowledge of it being a sin. And so this leads us to the understanding that Catholics have of mortal sin being a real thing. Um, and for a mortal sin, there's three conditions that have to be met. It needs to be a serious matter, um, right? So, so taking an extra penny from the take a penny jar, generally speaking, is not going to be a mortal sin. Uh, something that breaks the, the Ten Commandments, though, in a real way uh, would be uh, a mortal sin. Um, it needs to be a, a so it needs to be a grave matter. It needs to be something that you understand is evil. And that goes to what Jesus says. You know, you say we understand, therefore your sin remains. Um, you know, without that, um, if, if you don't fully understand what it is that you're doing, then you're not going to be fully blamable or fully culpable. And so your action may still be objectively grave, uh, objectively serious, uh, but you are subjectively less blamable or less culpable and, and again this comes directly from christ himself and then the third obviously it needs to be freely committed um so if somebody drugs you and brainwashes you into you know uh assassinating the prime minister of malaysia <laughs> and you're a, a really 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 good looking model uh so that's a t it's a reference to a stupid stupid movie um zoolander if you're curious <laughs> um you know, so if it's not freely willed, obviously, then it's not going to be something that is um, that you're blamable for as well. So it would make it uh, some sort of a, a lesser sin, a venial sin, but not a mortal sin. Um, and we know that there's definitely actions that can uh, cut a Christian off from divine life. We see this referenced in a number of different places. Paul talks about, you know, he warns the believers about actions they shouldn't do. Uh, actions that the reprobate do or the, the sinners do that cut them off from Christ. Um, but Peter actually says something very explicitly. Um, I pulled these up. I don't think I have them in the right order. I think this is it right here. There we go. Uh, and I've shared this elsewhere. So this is Second uh, Peter 2, verses 20 and following. He says this. He's talking about, I'll go back a little bit further. Uh, he said, there are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm for them. The nether gloom of darkness has been reserved. For uttering loud boasts of folly, they entice with licentious passions of the flesh men who have barely escaped from those who live in error. So, again, these are men who have escaped. He's going to tell us more. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered. This last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment uh, delivered to them. Uh, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit and the sow is washed uh, only to wallow in the mire again. Um, and so here we see a very clear reference. You can find this also. Hebrews 6 um, talks about those who have tasted uh, of the divine and then have gone back. Um, I can pull that one up here in a minute as well if you want. Let's just go ahead and do that really quickly. Uh, should be Hebrews 6. It is impossible for those 
who have once been enlightened, verses verse 4, uh, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Um, and th there's ways to understand this. Uh, I'm not going to get into what this impossibility actually entails because it's not quite the same thing. I think it, it's more a matter of what we pray for. And this actually goes back to what John says. Uh, he says there's sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying you should pray about these mortal sins because those are the types of things that really only God can affect because um, it requires contrition in, in the in the heart of the, the sinner. Um, obviously, we can, we can pray about it in the sense of, you know, dear Lord, please you know, lead this person back into a better way of life. But the simple point is, um, John talks about a sin that leads to death. Hebrews talks about tasting, being enlightened, and then falling away. Uh, Peter talks about, I guess it's the same verse here. Um, Peter talks about um, those who have, again, uh, escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are then again entangled in them and overpowered. Uh, it would have been better for them to have never known the way. And this makes sense also when you think of some of the things that Jesus says. You know, he, he gives a number of parables that seem to state uh, to those who have, more is expected. Um, you know, and, and that just makes sense, right? So if you've, you, if you've had a better encounter with the truth, more is expected of you. Same with those scribes and the Pharisees when, when Jesus says, because you say you know, because you've encountered this truth uh, and you reject it, uh, you are more blamable, you are more culpable. So it's actually better for you to have been ignorant in a sense uh, than it is to have not been ignorant and then to have rejected it. This is a very scriptural model, and it's something that a lot of, I've noticed, a lot of Protestant theologians just don't quite grasp. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure that I pointed this out to you guys, because I think it is um, quite quite striking, and it's something that I think that uh, Brother Mike here is kind of missing out. But let's continue on. So you go to this guy, and you confess your sins, and here's the theology in Rome. I'm just going to summarize it for you. In Roman teaching, there's something called the treasury of merit. And I want you to imagine, if you can, a giant bank vault full of good works, and the good works are Jesus's good works, Mary's good works, and then thirdly, the works of the, the good works of the saints, not of all Christians, just specifically the, like the canonized saints, their good works. And that's like locked up and secured. And the only way to access this treasury of merit is through the keys that the Catholic Church has, the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16. Uh, so the treasury of merit, the keys to the kingdom do not necessarily refer to uh, that. That's actually a reference to the patron primacy. We'll come back to that later. I think he'll bring that up at some point. Um, and I have... Uh, I have videos talking about that already. It's a very clear allusion to Isaiah 22, 22, I think it is, um, which to, speaks about the heir of the, the kingdom of David um, or the, the steward of the kingdom of David. And his job is to, to open and shut, to bind and loose. And whatever he opens, no one will shut. Whatever he shuts, no one will open. Um, and I mean, ultimately, I mean, it, it, it does actually refer to the forgiveness of sins as well, because Jesus gives the other 11 apostles in the presence of Peter two chapters later in Matthew 18, a similar authority to bind and to loose. And he does it in the context of forgiveness of sins uh, and how many times you must forgive your brother. And uh, if they don't repent to you know, bring him, bring him to the church, he says in, in Matthew 18. So there is a relationship here, but the, the treasury of merits is really an understanding of how um, our participation in the works of Christ, uh, our participation with Christ itself generates grace, right? And this can seem like a really foreign concept, but this is, again, something that we actually can find in a lot of places. So Mike is going to reference this in a minute, but I'll just pull it up now. Uh, in James chapter 5, um, the prayer of the righteous man is great 
in its effect, has great power in its effect, or the prayer of the righteous availeth, availeth much, right? And why? Right? Why, why, would, why would one man's prayer be more effective than another man's prayer? This seems to be a biblical concept, right? But, but why would that be? Well, it has to do with the fact that each of us participates in Christ to the level of our ability. And the more holy you are, the more sanctified you are, the deeper you are in this process, the more fully you can communicate with Christ, uh, the more fully you can participate uh, in his grace. And we see this in lots of places. One of my favorite passages is actually uh, Mark chapter 2. And in Mark chapter 2, um, this is that story of the paralytic and, and people are crowding around a house that Jesus is in and he, uh, they, they can't get in. So what do they do? They climb up on the roof, they open the roof and they, they drop their friend down. And we actually see a couple of interesting things. In fact, I, I didn't pull this up, but I'm going to go ahead and pull this up here. Let me, let me just jump up here. This is Mark two. Um, let's see here. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together. So there was no longer room for them, not even about the door, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes and the Pharisees were sitting there, and they questioned in their hearts, Why does this man speak thus? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned thus within themselves, said to them, Why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, which of course leaves no sign, uh, or rise, pick up your mat, and walk. But that you may know, and he uses a unique title for himself here. This comes from Daniel, uh, but it accentuates the humanity of Christ. He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out before them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, what I love about this passage is this little verse right up here. They came bringing him a paralytic man. They couldn't get near him. They removed the roof. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Here we see Jesus, of course, exercising this spiritual fatherhood, which we'll come back to at a, at a later point. Um, but he forgives the sins of the son, of the boy, of the man, the paralytic, based on the faith of his friends. This is the type of uh, notion that is almost utterly foreign uh, to, um, sorry, there's another passage I want to bring up. So I'm always thinking about, you know, 15 different passages I want to talk about while I'm doing this. Um, this is 1 Corinthians 7 as well. Because uh, Paul makes a similar comment when he's talking about marriage. Um, and he, he talks about, uh, to the people who are married, um, let's see here. All right, here it is right here. 
Uh, it says, the rest I say, not I, I, but not the, not the Lord. Say, if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Um, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is consecrated or made holy through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is consecrated through her husband, otherwise her children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Uh, and he, so here we see Paul's going to give permission for divorce in one situation. This when you have a non-sacramental marriage, which is to say, uh, and we'll talk about this at some point as well. I have a whole class in the RCA file about this. But um, when you have a, a marriage that is a natural marriage, um, it's able to be dissolved. Um, it's, it's better for it not to be for a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons is, as Paul says, the unbelieving spouse is consecrated through the believing spouse. And so this echoes what Jesus says here, uh, when, when it says the, the sins of the, the paralytic are forgiven based not on anything he did, but on the faith of his friends. This extends to everything, including baptism, um, right? Uh, one of the reasons we, we baptize babies, other than the fact that it's biblical and historical, uh, and we believe that, that baptism is in fact efficacious, uh, is the fact, you know, it, it literally is right here. You know, the, the sins of the, the children are forgiven. Uh, the sins of those who are baptized are forgiven um, based on the, the statement of faith by those who have brought them to the sacrament. Obviously, if you're old enough to, to consent, you can't be forcibly baptized, uh, but a, a child can be spoken for by their parents. And again, this is something we see in the, the earliest documents of the church, uh, the earliest writings of the martyr church. Uh, they, they talk about this and they give prescriptions about uh, the best ways to do this. Uh, they say things that like Hippolytus says, you know, if the little ones can speak for themselves, let them. If they can't, let their parents uh, speak for them. So this is uh, very much a, a clearly biblical notion. Um, but again, that's the whole thing, right? This The treasury of merits really has to do with our participation uh, in the uh, the, the very grace of Christ, which is doled out to us, not piecemeal, the way Brother Mike keeps talking about it, but continuously, though in spurts at the same time, right? Um, we are designed to be completely filled by grace. I'll try to remember to link to it at some point. Um, I have a, uh, a video on sacramental economy uh, on this uh, somewhere on my channel. Just search the channel. You'll find it. I'll try and link it up in the, the little eye in the top corner, wherever that is. Um, but the, the very concept is, you know, every time we receive the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, which Mike will get to in a few minutes here, uh, every time we receive those sacraments, uh, we deepen our ability to receive sanctifying grace. We deepen our relationship with Christ, um, etc. And so, you know, all of this has to do with our continuing path towards holiness uh, and our ability to, to follow Christ. Anyway, I think that was the bulk of what it was that I wanted to say there. Uh, sorry, I had to pause for just a minute. Um, let's go ahead and continue with, with uh, Brother Mike. See, So I go to the priest and I say, here, I've sinned. I've done this. I've done this. And he officially reaches up with the keys, opens, the, opens the, the vault, takes some of the good works out of Jesus, Mary, and the saints, and he applies some of it to me to bring me back into a state of grace. That's really not quite what's happening. What's happening is Jesus himself is acting through the sacraments. We say that the priest acts in persona Christi or in the person of Christ. Uh, Jesus himself uh, gives us authority. And he's going to give us a, a weird passage. He's actually going to give us a passage that is a reference probably to the anointing of the sick here in a few minutes. Um, and he says it's the only place that we can find um, the concept of uh, penance. 
uh, or confession or reconciliation. It's it's three different names for the same sacrament because they just accentuate different aspects of the sacrament, right? So uh, we call it reconciliation because we're seeking to be reconciled with God. We call it penance uh, because usually there's some form of penance we're assigned as a way of showing our contrition, but also of, of growing in holiness, right? That's always the goal is to be growing in holiness. And of course, it's called confession because you confess your sins. When Jesus has resurrected uh, and before he has ascended, we see this. On the evening of the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad that when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, it's important to bear in mind, and this is something I find a lot of my Protestant brothers and sisters struggle with, not everything that Jesus says is directed to you in the scriptures. I think we often approach the Bible as, well, this is, this is God's word, and he meant it for me specifically. And he does want you to have it, obviously. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real thing, right? But not everything in the scriptures is written for everyone in the same way. And so this is one of those times where he's speaking not to everybody, not to the crowds, uh, though he does encourage the crowds to forgive. We should always be forgiving because as we forgive, so shall we be forgiven. Um, but here he's giving a unique authority. So Jesus comes to usher in the ministry of reconciliation. And he gives this authority to his apostles, and he gives them authority to both forgive sins and retain them. Now, what's unique about that is, is the, the idea of retaining sins. And what that really means is in order to, to, to know which sins to, to forgive and which sins to retain, they've got to know what those sins are, right? So literally, the, the direct implication of this in, in the first, second, third century practice of the, the Christians, the only references you can find are going to be references to something that is essentially confession. Now, the form of confession has changed. It used to be a little more... Um, uh, something you go and do a couple times, uh, and oftentimes it had a much more public aspect to it, um, though the priest still uh, wouldn't reveal your sins. We call that the, the seal of confession. Um, but there was often a much more public aspect to it, and oftentimes the penance was pretty severe, like go stand in the icy cold river at midnight and, you know, say, uh, you know, pray the first ten psalms five times or something along those lines, right? Um, so so the the form of of the thing has changed over the years and that's fine because it's not set out explicitly what that form has to look like uh just that that authority is there and one of the abilities the church has one of the 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 bits of authority that she has uh is the authority to to make the decisions on how we we uh, practice or, or offer these sorts of sacraments, right? But here we see very, very clearly Jesus gives authority to the apostles uh, as God sent him. And how did God send him? He sent them on the ministry of reconciliation. So as God sends me, so I send you. He breathes on them. This is for, for my, my Orthodox brethren, the filioque, right? The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Son here. Um, although it doesn't actually necessarily not jive with what they think because they say it proceeds from the Father through the Son as opposed to from the Father and the Son. But that's for another day. <laughs> but I just always find it interesting because here we see literally the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Son. Anyways, go back to Pastor Mike again. And then he just tells me my part. My part is the confession and then the penance. Now the third, so contrition over sin, confession, and the third part is following the instructions of the priest. 
following the instructions of the priest. Typically, this involves praying like 10 Our Fathers or 10 Hail Marys. Um, praying the rosary is a work. It merits grace. Praying the rosary every day is going to try to help keep you out of purgatory. Uh, sometimes this requires a religious pilgrimage to a shrine of Christ or Mary or wearing painful clothing. I have a feeling that the, the things the priest requires in the United States are a lot easier than the things the priest require if you go to South America. I think they're probably more strict and ask for more. Just because. And that's even just in the modern world, in all honesty, uh, you know, the, the, the idea. And, and again, the penance is not designed to work off your sin. Uh, it's really not. And that's a common misconception because your sins are forgiven the moment the priest gives you absolution. Uh, and in fact, if you intentionally don't do your penance, all you're doing is incurring a new sin. It doesn't invalidate your confession. It doesn't make it so that uh, your sins are no longer forgiven. It's just, it's a requirement that you need to do. And if you make an honest attempt to complete it, you, if you actually forget, again, intention is everything here. Uh, it's, it's objectively grave, um, but you are not culpable. If, uh, you know, busy life, you've got, you're married, you've got kids, you've got a job and everything else, and you don't get a chance to get to your penance, and you just totally forget to say that decade of the rosary or whatever it happens to be. Um, so he's misunderstanding the, the very practical aspects of, uh, of confession. I could talk a lot more about confession. Confession is one of my favorite sacraments. In fact, it probably is my favorite sacrament. I try and go, this isn't bragging, but I try and go on a weekly or bi-weekly basis if I can. Uh, I happen to live somewhere right now next to a, a monastery and a very, uh, Catholic college and a, a very vibrant parish. So there's often, uh, three or four times a day that one can go to confession. So, uh, I live a very privileged Catholic life. Uh, where I currently am. Um, anyway, let's let's keep listening to Brother Mike. Because we're more of an individualistic and lazy culture, so, <laughs> so they don't want to put too much on us, I guess. Um, but what's interesting is the priest, if, you, if you've ever been to a confessional, then the priest has a purple stole that he wears. That, I don't know if you know this, that is meant to signify his authority, purple being the color of royalty. Okay. Now, actually, there's something to that. Uh, purple has always been traditionally the color of royalty, and the priest is acting in persona Christi. And so, uh, in that sense, I actually could totally jive with the idea of it representing royalty because he's representing Christ. But liturgically, purple is also the color, color of penance and contrition, uh, which is why liturgically, during the season of Lent and the season of Advent, uh, we change the colors of everything in the church. Uh, those are the, the purple times. You have your ordinary time, which is 33 uh, weeks out of the year is ordinary time. Uh, and then you've got your about seven weeks of Lent, four weeks of Advent. Those are purple. Um, you have seven-ish uh, weeks of, of Easter. That's white. You have the Christmas season, which is white. Um, you have red for Pentecost, as well as um, feasts for martyrs. White also for solemnities, like the Feast of St. Joseph in March, uh, which is coming up, which is usually during Lent. And if you're listening to this and you're Catholic and you gave up something for Lent, uh, that's a solemnity, and solemnities override the solemn nature of Lent. Uh, and, and in fact, when um, the, the Feast of St. Joseph falls on a Friday during Lent, uh, you actually are permitted, and I would even say encouraged, to celebrate and, and, and eat meat on those days. Uh, that's just a little bit of fun Catholic trivia for you. Um, anyway. And it has a purple stole to say, I, am, I have the authority. However, the stole does represent the yoke of Christ. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That stole is meant to recall this uh, yoke of Christ. Forgive your sins. See, going to a priest is not about, hey, pastor, will you pray for me? Hey, I need to talk to somebody. I've got some struggles going on. I need some fellowship. I need some, some advice and counsel. I do counseling all the time. But that's not what this is about. This is not about... Well, it sort of is and it sort of isn't. It's about something far deeper than mere counseling, though oftentimes priests will give you some sort of advice, some sort of counseling. Um, 
when you go to them, and that's really up to the priest. Um, some confessions really are just, they hear your sins, they give you absolution, they give you a penance, and you're on your way. Sometimes they'll probe and they'll ask questions. Here is, I'm going to share with you an apocryphal story. Um, I've heard this repeated from numerous sources who have PhDs in this area, uh, psychology. So I think that there's something to it, but I've not been able to personally verify this yet. Um, and it's actually about Sigmund Freud, uh, the the inventor of modern psychoanalysis. And supposedly, um, Freud had noticed that amongst the people he was seeing and, and, and treating, um, the Catholic ones tended to be, I guess, a little better adjusted, a little better temperamental or, or something. I don't remember the exact phraseology um, that was used. And he he reasoned that the Catholics did something that the Protestants didn't. And the difference was confession. Um, the Catholics would go and they would speak frankly about something that they struggle with. Um, and it forced them to kind of open up. And so he actually based, potentially, um, his practice. Again, this is an apocryphal story. I can't verify it, but it might be true. And I think, I think there's probably definitely some merit to the story. Uh, and so he based the very concept of psychoanalysis on the idea of confession, where you're, you're talking to someone about what you're struggling with in a non-judgmental way, and then that person just kind of, you know, sometimes gives you some feedback uh, or guides you through it. And uh, so that's not to say my psychoanalysis is anything like confession, doesn't forgive your sins, etc. cetera. Um, but the concept is, is actually very, very similar. And I think it's, it's telling that the divine physician, Christ himself, is also the divine psychologist, and he knows what we need, right? Uh, and he gives us what we need. And sometimes we need to hear the words, you are forgiven. And we need objective third-party criteria, the objective third-party um, advice from somebody who can, you know, hear what we're struggling with and, and give us advice. And honestly, we need humility and nothing makes you humble like having to own up to your fault and, and admit your fault out loud even if it's in the privacy of the box with the screen right uh and you can go to confession face to face you can go to confession behind the screen um but anyway about counseling although i'm sure at times it turns into a counseling session this is about getting your sins forgiven through the one and only source the catholic church where sins can be forgiven okay i want to be careful here because he's going to come back to this a couple different times and i want to say something that probably is going to sound weird to you if you're not Catholic. It maybe even sounds weird if you are. The Catholic Church does not teach it is the one and only source for this stuff. Um, now, it is Christ's church. It is the fullness of the truth. Um, but the sacraments are given to us by God, who is himself not limited to the sacraments. That's a very important distinction. So God can act outside of the sacraments. Now, he still gives us the sacraments, and he gives them to us for a reason, right? He gives them to us for our own benefit. He gives them to us so that we can build a relationship with him. He gives them to us so that we can continue to grow and, and deepen the well of holiness in our soul, right? Um, so we can stay aright with him. And it's good for us to go to those. It's good for us to have those. But he can work outside of the sacraments. And we actually see a couple places in scripture where he seems to do that. The, when Jesus is dying, uh, the thief on the right defends him. And he says, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Um, after admitting that he and, and his conspirator, uh, the other thief deserved the punishment that they were getting. And Jesus says to him, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, there's a lot of things going on, even in that simple little passage, because what paradise means is not necessarily heaven, because we know that when Jesus dies, he doesn't go immediately to heaven. Uh, he actually goes, as, as 1 Peter 3 tells us, to, to hell, to Hades, to Sheol, and preaches the gospel to the spirits who are 
in prison uh, who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Uh, and I don't think this is just doing a victory lap, right? He's he's preaching the gospel. He's giving them the good news. And he's not doing it in a na-na-na-na-na-na, sucks-to-be-you, idiots, sort of a way. You know, this is God who is love, right? That's that's the most powerful revelation inside of Christianity, inside of our faith uh, as, as Catholics and as Christians, is that God is love and everything he does is motivated by love and you have to keep that as your overriding principle when talking about any of this stuff when talking about the sacraments because otherwise you're going to get out of totally out of whack and i think that's one of the things that 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 pastor mike kind of gets into here he keeps missing the the forest for the trees in a sense he keeps missing the truth of this because he he doesn't incorporate all of this as a participation in the very grace and love and life of god uh who gives us these things right um and so that's that's kind of the big thing there, right? Um, so so, and he'll he'll make a point about talking about whether the Protestants are are still the Reformation is still going on or whatnot. And so, as Catholics, we would say our Protestants are in fact our separated brethren. Um, they are uh, deficient in certain things. They are missing uh, key aspects of the truth. They are missing the sacraments, which are the normative means for the dispensing of grace. Uh, but again. Though we are limited to those in our presumption of receiving grace, because God gives us these avenues of grace, nevertheless, God himself is not limited to those, which is why we believe firmly that although salvation comes from being a member of the church, which is the body of Christ, and that body is one, people who are imperfectly joined to the church in this life can still have hope to be fully joined to that body, which is the body of Christ, which is what salvation is in the next this treasury of merit that only they have the keys to. So if your mortal sins have been committed, you get sort of you get brought back, you get saved again when you when you do this confession. And if it's venial sins, then those get washed away. Again, watch the video on sacramental economy that I have because with forgive again or or, or whatever I, I just said it, I lost it. It's it's not like getting totally you are getting forgiven again, but you're not saved again. You're you're riding yourself with God. So again, imagine us like we're we're a cup. We're designed to be a glass. Um, and, you know, we're designed to hold grace. So this liquid in here, I'm having some wine. Um, <laughs> and this uh, this liquid represents the, the, the love of God. Well, we're designed to be a beautiful chalice. Obviously, this is glass. This is an imperfect analogy for my imperfect analogy, but just roll with it. Um, and original sin is like taking the, the chalice and, and breaking it or, or, or crumping, crump, crumpling it into a ball so it can no longer hold the, the love of God, the grace of God uh, inside of it. And... Baptism strikes us, makes an indelible mark that allows us to start to, to collect grace. And then continuous reception, particularly of the Eucharist, is what deepens that well, as well as reception of, of the graces like uh, confirmation. Deepens that well, allows us to receive more and more grace. Now, when we sin, if it's a more, if it's a venial sin, it's like tipping the glass. And if I tip the glass too much, it's going to start to lose some of the grace that we've collected. But also, and this is just physics, it actually loses its ability to, to be completely filled right so if i tip this this way and i started to fill it the 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 balance point the level point would be right here so all of this part would just simply go go to waste until we write ourselves so a venial sin a lesser sin is kind of like tipping the glass and maybe losing some grace and limiting your ability to, to to fully gain grace whereas a mortal sin is like taking this glass and just turning it upside down and once it's upside down kind of like if it was you know smashed into a ball or whatever very little grace is able to actually collect on it until we write ourselves and that is reconciliation that is what that process is
so that hopefully, like, let's say that you walk right out of, you know, the uh, the confessional and you've done the things the priest have told you to do, and then bam, you get hit by an airplane or something, I don't know, whatever, right? And, you know, you, you, you fall into, like, a lava pit or something, and you die right away. Hopefully, you're just going to go straight to heaven and skip purgatory. But then if you wait till later that day, you may have committed some venial sins, or possibly even a mortal sin, in which case you, you've, you've lost your salvation if it's a mortal sin. And again, that's a biblical concept. We see multiple places talking about receiving the good news, <laughs> receiving the gospel, receiving the grace, being freed from the world by accepting uh, Jesus. By uh, What was that passage from Second Peter? Shoot. I have too many tabs up here, and they're all timing out on me. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, anyway uh, for those who have once been enlightened, that's probably, do I have Hebrews open up here? Hebrews 10, shoot. You know, it was this, it was this window right here, I think. There it is. So yeah, um, escaping the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and then re-entangled, right? So clearly it can happen. So there's a problem with this. In fact, there's several that probably have already occurred to you. In fact, in fact, for Bible-believing Christians, just hearing the theology of the Catholic Church is enough to get you to go, yeah, that's just, wow, that's weird. That's so not what I read in the Bible. But it is, and that's the thing. But he doesn't read the Bible like a Catholic and doesn't read the Bible like most Christians have read it throughout human history, including most Christians who are alive today, because most Christians who are alive today are Catholics. There is no Roman Catholic priesthood in the Bible. False. It just doesn't exist. You never see people in the book of Acts going to a priest and confessing their sins. We you actually see this in a couple of places. And in fact, one of the places he's going to reference here in a minute is uh, James 5, which again, I should have up here, but I may have gotten rid of it uh, for the sake of something else. We'll just pull this one up here really quickly and we'll go to James 5. And in James 5, we see um, essentially the, the anointing of the sick. He says, is any of you, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And I want to change this color. I want this to be a specific color if I can make it, because um, we're going to come back to this concept in a minute. Um, the elders of the church, let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus, praying that their faith will save the sick man. The Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, because of the prayers of these elders. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. The prayers of the righteous man availeth much, whatever, right? Um, so what are these elders? Um, See, this is James 5.14. I'm going to pull up Blue Letter, Blue Letter Bible just because it's got the concordance. And where I say 14, there we go. So here's the word for elders, and it's presbyteros, right there. Presbyteros. Uh, in presbyters, how you often see it translated in English. It is a phrase that can just mean elders. That's often how it's translated. But a better translation for this is priest. And the reason the better translation for this word is priest is because literally the English word priest is just an old English contraction of presbyter. Prest, prest, presbyter, presbyteroi, right? Prest, priest. He's talking about the priest. The reason we have the word priest in English is because of the word presbyter, because of these these elders, right? So don't be misled by the concept of the word priest, because literally that's the word that's being used anytime you you hear about the elders in in scripture. You also see um, the overseers, the episcopoi, uh, which is a word that's come down to us as uh, bishops. In fact, if you look in the old English, the the word episcopoi or episcopal is translated as the bishopric. We are all priests, according to First Peter chapter two, verses five and verse nine. We're 
So here's First Peter 2. He says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God uh, through Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is great, right? We are a royal priesthood. But you know what this is echoing? This is echoing the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we read that you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And in the Old Testament, we had a threefold level of priesthood. You actually had the high priest, which was Aaron and his sons. You had the ministerial priesthood, which was the Levites. And then you had the priesthood of all of Israel. And all of Israel was told that they are a kingdom of priests, but that doesn't mean there weren't ministerial priests and a high priest. And this is directly paralleled in the new covenant. Uh, because as, as Augustine says, uh, and it's translated beautifully into English, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is uh, revealed. In the, in the New Testament, the Old Testament is concealed. And so you can see these things plain together. So we actually have a threefold level of the priesthood in the New Testament as well. We have one high priest, that's Christ, right? But we do still have a ministerial priesthood, and we have the general priesthood of all of the believers, which is you and me and everyone else uh, who believes. And we are called to do what priests do. We are called to bring um, the good news, the gospel to the world, right? We are called to, to participate in that ministry of reconciliation to the level of our ability, but not everyone has the same ability. Not everyone has the same gifts. Ephesians 4 makes this point. Um, Paul says this also in, in one of the Corinthians. Uh, he says, you know, is everyone a prophet? Is everyone an apostle? Uh, you know, is everyone a teacher? No, people have different gifts. Um, but the fact that not everyone is doesn't mean that nobody is, right? Some are. <laughs> some are prophets. Some are apostles. Uh, some are teachers. Uh, elsewhere, we see um, the idea of, of the way that ordination happens is the laying on of hands. And we see this in lots of different places in Scripture. Um, we see this in Acts 6, um, where they present the, the, the diaconate, the, the deacons, including Stephen, the first martyr, uh, and they lay their hands on them. We see this uh, in Acts 13, um, where after they fast and pray, they place they, they place their hands on these men and then they send them off, right? They said the, the uh, it's actually P uh, Peter, I think it is, uh, the church in Antioch, Barnabas, Simon, Niger, uh, Lucius, uh, and Saul were there. And then the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. So they ordain them. They lay their hands on them, right? This isn't just like randomly laying hands. Like this is a thing. This is what the church did. This is how that sacrament is, is affected. And we see this in lots of ways. Uh, and in fact, in uh, 1 Timothy 4, um, we see Paul talk about, you know, don't neglect the gift that was given to you, your gift of prophecy, when the body of the elders, the, the priests, laid their hand on you. So here we see a reference as well. Uh, and then in 2 Timothy uh, 1, we see this, for this reason, I remind you to fan and flame the gift of God, uh, which is given to you through the laying on of hands. Um, and there's another passage I wanted to pull up, and I don't think I actually have it pulled up. Um, or maybe I missed it. But at one point, Paul says, don't lay hands on somebody too readily or too too quickly. And what that concept really means is um, for the church to appoint priests, they have the authority to, to appoint who they want to appoint. And not everyone is going to be appointed as a priest. They should test these men, make sure they're holy. Uh, Paul puts stipulations on them. He says the, the, the bishop should be the, the husband of one wife. Uh, so there's marital... Um, prescriptions, right? Uh, a bishop cannot remarry. And this has been the constant practice of the church uh, for 2,000 years in the East and the West. Bishops aren't married. Um, 
obviously when Paul was writing, lots of people who were appointed to bishops would have already had wives, but his whole point is they need to be dedicated. He says this in, in I already read from 1 Corinthians 7, uh, he talks about it's better for the, the follower to uh, to be single rather than married because then he can focus completely on God. And so he wants the overseers of the church to be completely dedicated to, to that mission and ministry. And that's why he puts this, this prescription. It, it's not that there was this rash of polygamy in the early church. And he's like, no, stop marrying multiple wives. You need to be married the, the husband of one wife. And it's not it's not an order that he has to be the husband of one wife. Uh, he has to have a wife at all times. No, it's, it's a limitation that says you can only be married one time. Um, and he, if he has children, then his house needs to be in order and, and all that stuff. So this is, this again, this is, this is literally, if, if you, if you read the early church, if you read the scriptures through the lens of the Catholic faith, you'll see all of this stuff far more plainly than you thought it was there. And this is something that Pastor Mike just keeps missing. We're all priests, every one of us. But there's right one there. particular verse that I hear used by Catholic theologians to promote the idea of having to go to a priest to get forgiven. And it's James 5, 16. I'd like to read it to you. It says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, you can push the priesthood onto this, but it's like it's like a square peg in a round hole. Except it's not because he directly references the elders of the church, which are the presbyters or the priests of the church in that passage. But again, this is actually a passage that's really more talking about anointing of the sick uh, more than anything else. And we can see this reference in a number of places in the early church as well. I'm not going to worry about, yeah, I should probably have all those quotes pulled up. I have notes. I teach RCA classes. I have notes and all this stuff. Um, I will have all this stuff in the RCA stuff, so you can go through that at some point if you want. Um, um, but the point is, you know, the early church talks about this, and he was Cyril talks about this this other seventh sacrament that's harder to to get, where you're you're anointed with oil for the the curing of sick, and and and, and really what the anointing of the sick does is it prepares you uh, for death, it does forgive sins, but it also helps you to unite your sufferings to the sufferings of Christ, which is again a very biblical imperative. Paul says he has a thorn in his side that's given to him for the sake of him, uh, you know, growing in, in, in holiness and whatnot. So this is, again, a very, very biblical model. It's, this is not about the priesthood. Confessing my trespasses one to another. Just open up and talk to each other. Any there's a benefit in doing that, and there's certainly not a prescription against doing that. But that's not what this passage is about in, in James 5, nor, again, if you go back to uh, John uh, 20. When Jesus gives to the apostles, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain or retain. The son of man who has authority to, to forgive sins gives the authority to forgive sins to his apostles. Any of you confessing to any of you fulfills this, not a priesthood. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's talking about body ministry where we're all priests in the kingdom of God. And we're all. Yeah. That's part of it, but that's not a hundred percent. And again, the prayer of the righteous availeth much. Really think about what that means, because that's really, uh, it's a matter of understanding. That's, I mean, that's what the Catholic Treasury of Merit speaks about. Like, that's really what that means. The more closely you are united to Christ, the, the more powerful your prayers are, which is why we also, of course, invoke the, the saints and, 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 and the angels and everything else. And we'll talk about that down the road. But uh, anyway. Have the ability to minister to each other, pray for each other. Your prayers are as powerful as mine or as powerful as anybody else's. When, when they thought, oh, we don't have enough faith, Lord, that's when he told them, oh, all you need is a mustard seed. I like the old song, it says, you don't have to have a lot, just use what you got. <laughs> and it's, you know, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Your prayers are powerful because the one you pray to is powerful. That's true. So 
this think about this like, like that's the aspect that's that's the essence of participation right the body is a participation we are all members of the body participating in the body of christ and it's because it is the body of christ that all of the other stuff happens if you were just studying the bible and you're rebuilding christian doctrine you were stranded on an island and you, you know nothing of christ except what the bible taught would you ever come up with the roman catholic priesthood would you ever come up with the concept that the bible is all that you need do you read James 5.16? Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Obviously, this means we have to get purple stoles. You got to get like a little box that you go into and then you have to say what you've done to the priest. And if it's a venial sin, then you know, that'll get dealt with as a mortal sin. You'll get saved again. And then you never would come up with this stuff. This is clearly extra biblical. According to the book of Hebrews, and I strongly encourage reading it if, if this is a challenging concept for you at all, Hebrews, we go straight to God through Jesus. That's end of story. We go straight to God through Jesus. Do not let anyone get between you and God. Notice that Pastor Mike is actually an intermediary right here right? Uh, he's, he's delivering the truth to you. So he is between you and God, um, whether he realizes it or not. And again, this is an utterly biblical model, right? From the, the, the men who take the paralytic to Jesus, uh, to Paul talking about believing spouses and unbelieving spouses and all stops in between, right? We are all priests. And so we are all intermediaries, but some of us have unique authority uh, to, to, to mediate in a special way, though that mediation is only because it's a participation in the body of Christ. It's not because the priest is special and unique in and of himself. It's because he participates more fully in the body of Christ. Because there is no one between you and God. So anyone who tries to squeeze in there is an imposter. Now, the third, the third uh, sacrament, the third way of getting grace is known as mass, M-A-S-S, mass. Okay. <laughs> this is already showing uh, ignorance here. Mass is not itself a sacrament. The sacrament is the Eucharist. Uh, it has lots of other words. Eucharist is a Greek word that means Thanksgiving, the meal of thanks. Um, communion, because it, sacri it, it, it shows or symbolizes the, the communion that we all have together. Um, it's got uh, the, the Lord's Supper, because of course he celebrates the Lord's Supper. Um, the Paschal Sacrifice, there's lots of different terms uh, for this, which is the source and summit of our faith. Um, and gosh, I could talk about this for hours in and of itself, but let's see what Pastor Mike has to say. Mass involves the re-presenting of the sacrifice of Jesus to the Father. I love that he says that because that is accurate. A lot of people think it's a representation. It's not. It's a re-presentation because God is outside of time and Jesus is God. The sacrifice of Jesus literally, in a sense, is time travel, which is crazy, right? Uh, more on that in a minute. In order to appease God's wrath and cover people's sins. Mass which you might think of as communion, is different. In fact, in the Catholic Church, it's called transubstantiation. And we have to... Okay. It's not called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the name we give to the doctrinal statement that explains what happens in the sacrifice of the Mass, which is communion. And all it states is that because Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, that's what it is, even though it continues to look like bread and it continues to look like wine. The, the best explanation I can give for this is this. Um, imagine I have a dog and my dog's name is Fido from the Latin for faithful, man's faithful friend. And my dog is faithful to me no matter what I do to him. So let's say I'm a terrible person. And one day I decide to cut off Fido's ears, bob his tail, chop off his legs and replace him with wheels. I shave all of his fur. I paint him polka dotted pink and purple colors. Um, you know, I gouge out his eyes. I pull out his teeth. Uh, he is not in good shape, right? He is, he is at this point, not a good dog, not, not a not a good version of a dog. If someone says, what's a dog? And you point to this, people are like, that's not a dog, right? But 
Is he still a dog? Is he still Fido? Yeah. So we've changed his physical appearance. Uh, the philosophical concept here borrowed from Aristotelian philosophy is the, the accidents, right? The, the things that are inconsequential to the essence of who or what Fido is. His essence, his substance, it's not substance in the sense of like I stepped in gum and I have this sticky substance on my shoe, but the substance just means like the essence, the, 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 the whatness, the thingness, the, the quiddity, the, the, the base of what a thing is, right? So his substance hasn't changed, even though I've drastically altered his his accents. Now, let's assume I'm not a terrible person. Instead, Fido sleeps at the foot of my bed. Every morning I get up, I see him, uh, you know, sleeping at the foot of my bed. I go and I get dressed and I pour him a bowl of, of food before I head off to work. And in the, in the afternoons or evenings, I come home and the food's been eaten and he's, you know, somewhere else waiting for me. And one day I come home and I see that the, he hasn't touched his food. And I go into my room and I see he's still laying there and I think, oh man, he is a sleepy dog. And I go over and I check and I go, oh, oh no, Fido is dead. Now, what I have at the foot of my bed, we often will say is still Fido. And, oh, there's Fido. But is it, is it still Fido if he's dead? Or is it, and this may sound harsh and if you've recently lost a pet, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to stir up painful emotions. But what I really have at the foot of my bed is dog-shaped or Fido-shaped fertilizer waiting to decompose, right? That's what it is. It is the body of Fido. It is the remains of Fido, but it is not Fido, even though it was indistinguishable at a glance. I couldn't tell the difference. If I were to take a skin sample, put it under a microscope, it would tell me it was a dog, right? Now, I, I may be able to tell depending because when you die, like not all of you dies at the same time and the cells can stay alive for a while, which is why you don't immediately rot. Um, but there, you know, death does start happening pretty quickly. Nevertheless, he could look exactly like Fido so much so that I wouldn't know the difference. Similarly, Christ looked like a man because he was a man. If you were to take a, 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 a DNA sample of Jesus and put it under, under a, not a, not a microscope, whatever you look at DNA with, uh, electron microscope or whatever, it would read that he was a human, right? You wouldn't, you almost certainly wouldn't, I guess I couldn't absolutely say, but you probably would see nothing that says, oh, this is God, you know, uh, he would just look like a Jewish man, but he wasn't. He was God incarnate. And I find it funny that a people who can believe that a person who looked like a man, talked like a man, and died like a man, nevertheless could be God. Not just a God, not a demigod, not a God like, uh, like you know, the, the Greek gods of old, like Hercules or, or, or whatever, but literally the Godhead incarnate in a man. If you can believe that God can do that... And you can accept that, that Jesus under a microscope would still look like a man, then you should be able to accept the concept of the Eucharist, that God himself can make himself fully present even under such circumstance. To know about this is mass is a means of grace. Remember, grace is given out piecemeal in the Catholic Church. Little by little. Here's some grace. Here's some grace. Here's some grace. Here's some grace. And you sin later. Don't think of it as piecemeal so much as continuously through different means, but especially through one that Jesus gave us, which is the new covenant in his blood. The only time Jesus even mentions the new covenant, the only time Jesus mentions the blood of the covenant is at the Last Supper. Well, you need more. You need to come back for more grace for that. So mass, this belief in transubstantiation, is where they say that the body and the blood of Christ are literally present in the cup and in the bread. 
And here's where they actually get into a little bit of physics. Uh, Catholic theology actually has a little bit of a position on, on, on physics and how things work in reality. They say that there's the accidents and the substance of an object. The accidents is just what it looks like, but the substance is what it actually is. And their belief is that when the priest, and you have to have the priest to do this, when he holds up the host and he holds up the bread and the cup and he says the special prayer ritual, what happens is this bread physically transforms into the actual physical body of Jesus Christ. It is now human flesh. And that the cup actually transforms into the physical blood of Jesus Christ. It is actually... Substantially. But the accidents remain. If you took the host and put it under a microscope, it would look like bread. The human blood. This is at the center of Catholicism. This is the most important, probably, of all of the sacraments, is Mass. It is constantly, constantly, constantly done. That's accurate. So, substance versus accidents. That, that's the view. It only looks like bread and wine. It's actually flesh and blood. This, according to Catholicism, is necessary for salvation. You can't be saved without this. This comes down to, again, the concept of what necessary for salvation means. Uh, the Catholic Church teaches, for instance, that outside of the Catholic Church, there is no salvation, extra ecclesia nullis house. But that doesn't mean that everyone who's a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church in this life will be saved. And it doesn't mean that everyone who's not a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church in this life cannot be saved. It simply means that to be saved, excuse me, is to be a member of the Church. And similarly... Jesus has given us the Eucharist to sustain us in this life, and it is the normative means of that grace. Now, he, in his divine wisdom and providence, being mercy and love, incarnate God himself as a man, he can dispense this grace in other unique ways that we can't see in the same way that he can present the gospel to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And sometimes it might even seem unfair, but remember the parable of the, the workers who are hired at 8 in the morning and 10 in the morning and 1 in the afternoon, 3 in the afternoon, and 5 in the afternoon, and they all get paid the same wage, right? You know, don't be envious because somebody has a, an easier path at the end of the day. He's the, the, the master of the harvest. And uh, he, he gives grace according to as he sees fit. But he knows what we need. And the, the process of salvation is the process of sanctification. And so this, this process through this life is the process of us growing closer to God, to Christ, through the continuous reception of his grace, deepening that well in us in the same way that the Colorado River deepened the Grand Canyon. Why do you have to represent Jesus? Because grace is doled out piece by piece, little by little, here, here a little, there a little, and that's the theology they have. That's not the scripture. We have grace that abounds. We are, we're washed and clean. <clears throat> so many Christian songs as we've been worshiping, you know, like even just today and the last several weeks as I've been doing this series, I, I keep singing a song thinking Roman Catholicism could never sing this song. They can never sing this song about, oh, Jesus, your grace is enough for me. They can never. We can definitely sing that song. Sing that. Because it's not. It I, is. But the sacraments are conduits of grace works now notice this this is not merely in remembrance that's what jesus said do this in remembrance of me those are the words he used when he talked about communion but this this is jesus like this is so talking about time travel <laughs> uh jesus in the context of the last supper um institutes the eucharist and the last supper was the passover and the passover was something unique because when the jews ate the passover they didn't eat it in remembrance in mere remembrance just as they oh remember when this happened sort of a way but when they celebrated the passover they said when god not when god brought us out in the past of, of egypt and out of bondage but when god brought me 
out of Egypt. That's why they eat the Passover meal with their, their loins girt, with their staff in hand, with sandals on their feet, as though they are preparing to leave. They are re-entering in a real sense into that night. It's, it's still, it's not perfectly real because this is prefiguring the Eucharist, but just as they would say that it, it wasn't merely just recalling or remembering uh, that night in Egypt so long ago, uh, so too the Eucharist as a remembrance is more than a remembrance because it's in the context of the the Last Supper. And so it is an, an entering into uh, this historical moment. So, and again, we, it, 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 Jesus is outside of time because he is God. And so it is that sacrament represented, ripped through space and time and applied in both directions throughout human history, which is why he can present the gospel to those in hell, in Hades actually Jesus. You're holding Jesus in your hands. You're putting him in your mouth and you're eating him. This strikes believers as, as, as it shocks people, right? But what, here's what it's done. I don't like that he keeps saying things like this strikes believers as shocking, right? Because again, Protestants uh, make up a very small amount of, of Christianity. And even inside of Protestant Christianity, there are many who have a belief in something akin to the real presence. They wouldn't use the phrase transubstantiation, but your, your Lutherans, your Anglicans, they have uh, you know, consubstantiation or something along those lines where they still profess that Jesus said this is his body and blood, so we take him at his word. But Pastor Mike, like the, the people in John 6, which he's about to reference, says this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? By elevating mass, or also called the Eucharist, by elevating it to this like really like high level, at least that's how it's viewed, what they've done now is they've said, ah, now we can give you something no one else can. And so you're sort of tied to the Catholic Church. You have to have this mass experience. And this is why they worship the bread and the cup after they've done the ritual to turn it into the body and blood of Jesus. They'll put it in special locations. They'll march it around the town to you know, different uh, religious pilgrimages and things like this. And they will physically bow down and worship the host. If it's Jesus, then you should worship it. Obviously, if it's not, then you shouldn't. So the question comes down to whether or not the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. Because they think it's Jesus. St. Ignatius of Antioch, writing around the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, depending on how you want to date it, writes this, They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. This is Ignatius. He is an Episcopal. He's a bishop of Antioch. He is writing this on his way to be fed to the lions. He was put there by Peter himself. Justin Martyr, another martyr for the faith, writing uh, about a generation later, says, Not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Christ Jesus, our Savior, has been made flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise, we've been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his words, from which our flesh and blood, by transmutation or nourish, which just means you dissolve the food and, and it becomes part of your body. That's not transubstantiation. It, but he says this, um, the, from which our body and blood... Our, our blood and flesh by transmutation nourished, that uh, food which is blessed by the prayer of his words is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon, uh, successor of Polycarp, who was the successor of John, says the bread over which thanks has been given is the body of their Lord and the cup is his blood. But what does the scripture say? Uh, here's what Paul says. And this is about as, as clear as it gets. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he says this. 
I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread of or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty for profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. So Paul is using words that it's almost it's impossible to read in any other way, right? To be guilty of profaning the body and the blood, right? To, to eat and drink judgment upon yourself because you don't discern the body uh, uh, of the Lord. It's very, very clear what's going on here. In a minute, he's going to talk about John 6. And uh, he says this is the only place where Catholics find this. And this is actually looking forward to what Jesus is going to be doing. Uh, and John 6 has this passage. It's called the, the Bread of Life Discourse, right? And at one point, he's talking to the Jews about being the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven. And they understand him kind of being metaphorical. They say, you know, it says the Jews murmured him because he says, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we've known? How does he say I've come down from heaven? They're not understanding him literally as bread at this point. They're understanding him kind of in this metaphorical way. And Jesus answers them. And he just keeps saying over and over and over and over again, um, do not murmur amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. It is written, they shall all be taught by God. Um, truly, I say to you, whoever believes his eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Sorry. And at this, the Jews understand him as being literal. And they say, the Jews disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, let me jump over here for a minute. I already read this passage from Corinthians. So let's pull up P, uh, Matthew uh, 16. And I'm not pulling up the Peter passage. Uh, I'm looking a lot earlier. Um, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, take heed to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when they discussed it among themselves saying, we brought no bread, Jesus aware of this said, oh, men of little faith, why do you discuss amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it you fail to perceive that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So at one point, Jesus gives a parable about bread. They understand him literally, and he corrects them. 
right? Uh, this is in Matthew 16. So in John 6, they understand him literally again talking about bread. And Jesus doesn't correct them. And Jesus even said up here, uh, in all that the Father gives me will come to me. I will not cast them out. I will not lose any that the Father uh, has, has sent to me, right? So literally he says, if they come to me, I'm not going to lose them. And what's going to happen here in a few verses is they're going to leave and he's going to let them go. Uh, and it's because they themselves are choosing to, to leave. So they understand him literally and they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed or true food. My blood is drink indeed or true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He's utterly clear. He repeats it like five times in a row that he is being literal in a, in a real sense, right? Uh, and in fact, uh, from a Hebrew perspective, to to eat the flesh of somebody uh, in a figurative sense is actually a negative thing. It means to, to, to ride them. You can find this in, in the Psalms and other places where it talks about eating the flesh of someone. They they eat my flesh. They pursue me. They consume me, etc. To, to do it in a figurative sense is actually a negative thing. So if Jesus is being figurative, he's like, he would be saying, Unless you deride me, unless you slander me, unless you hate me and revile me and attack me and profane me, you do not have life in you. And that doesn't make any sense. And instead, he keeps saying repeatedly, this is the truth. My flesh and my blood is for eternal life. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the word he uses here um, for eat in, uh, I think it's in 53, is trogon. In, in Greek, and literally that word means to gnaw or to chew. Like if you want to get the meat, the last little bits of meat off of a bone, you're going to trogon. You're going to you're going to chew. You're going to gnaw. You're going to masticate. You're going to grind with your teeth to to get that meat off. So he's using very very descriptive language. And at this point, many of his disciples, when they hear it, say, "This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it?" But Jesus, knowing in himself his disciples, remember, said, "Do you take offense at this? Right? Because it's something to take offense at if he's not being serious." What if you see the Son of Man ascending where he was again? It is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail. Mike's going to talk about this in a minute. He says the flesh is of no avail. But the flesh is a very unique phrase in Scripture. We see it referenced a lot. And the flesh means one thing, but my flesh means something different. Do not confuse these phrases because they don't mean the same thing. But let's go back to Pastor Mike. This is as close as you've ever been to Jesus. He's right here. This, it just strikes you as like, whoa, <laughs> where did this come from? It comes from the practice of the early church. It comes from the New Testament. This sounds really strange, and, and it is very strange. And here's the problem. It evolved over time. I know that the Catholic Church claims that the church has always viewed, you know, transubstantiation as being the way things are. I mean, it's just from the first century, just from the writings of St. Paul, you know, no biggie. Just, just since Jesus said it. Always thought that Jesus is physically in, in the, represented in the actual you know, bread and wine, that it actually turns his body and blood. But it is simply not true. This evolved over time. It, it just showed you that it didn't. wasn't, in fact, for instance, until over a thousand years later, about a thousand years later, when all of a sudden they started worshiping the Eucharist and actually doing this in around a thousand. Okay, that's also not true. 
necessarily. Now, there's an element of what he's saying is true, and that's simply that the, the practices of the church in the way that they treat things do change over time. And people for a thousand years meditating on the fact that this is the body and blood of Christ said, well, if this is Jesus, then this is worthy of worship. AD. And they started actually kind of like the phrase transubstantiation didn't come out until the 1200s, uh, but it came up precisely because people were raising objections all of a sudden that they hadn't raised for over a thousand years about the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And the church says we need to put the kibosh on this, right? That's what the church does. What the councils, that's what councils do, uh, starting in Acts 15 with the, the council in Jerusalem bow down and they started to put it in a special vessel and then they put out these decrees that said we're not going to give this to children anymore we can't give it to children because they might spill the blood in fact we'll give the bread to the people but we will not give the blood to the people because they might spill the blood and it became this very worry and concern about the exaltation of the actual substances you know um this stuff developed over time and it totally forgets the jewishness of the disciples of christ can you imagine can you imagine if the apostles seriously thought they were eating human flesh do you think they would have eaten yes so here's Leviticus, and this is where the prohibition against blood comes in. He's about to talk about this. This is why the Jews were prohibited from, from, from consuming blood. This is Leviticus 17. Um, if any, I'm going to start with verse 10. If any native Israelite or foreigner living among you eats or drinks blood in any form, I will turn against that person and cut him off from the community of your people, for the life of the body is in its blood. The life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. That is why I have said to the people of Israel, you must never eat draw, eat or drink blood, neither you nor the foreigners among you. For the life of every creature is in its blood. And that is why I have said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood, for the life of the creature is in the blood. Like it re repeats this like three different times in, in four verses, right? And part of the prescription here is a form of worship was the consummation of blood, consuming of blood. So if you, uh, if you wanted to have the power of a bull, the strength of a bull, the the stamina, the 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 courage, the whatever. Um, one of the the common sacrifices would be a blood sacrifice, where you would consume the blood of that creature because you wanted its life in you. Well, the problem with that, other than it being weird pagan nonsense, <laughs> is you don't want the life of a lesser being in you. So you should never want the life of any creature that is below you in you. And in fact, there's only one being whose life you would want in you, and that being is God. And the entire point of this passage in Leviticus is to prefigure and explain and put in context the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, the only time Jesus mentions blood in the New Testament. No. What does the Bible say? It says specifically, do not drink blood. Do not partake of blood. In Acts chapter 15, they had a whole discussion about the issue of blood, and they reiterate, don't drink blood. And you don't hear them say, except, of course, the Eucharist. That's an exception to the rule. He's talking about the Council of Jerusalem, and he's talking about it because it was scandalizing people. Um, and in fact, the, the issue is in the New Covenant, because we now have the understanding, we're no longer on the, under the Mosaic law, the, the, the objective moral law binds, but the, the laws that were designed to separate the Hebrew people, make them a people set apart, like not eating shellfish, not eating pork, not eating blood 
blood, uh, not wearing bladed fabrics, not shaving the sides of their temples, all that stuff was going away. Those were ceremonial practices that were designed to make this individual group of people, the, these Hebrews, uh, know that they were people set apart by God as a kingdom of of priests, right? They were a unique portion special to God, and they were supposed to live in their daily lives in a way that made them know that they were different and distinct from, from the people around them, right? Um, but that all went away. Uh, the, the Gospels themselves tell us at one point Jesus declares all food clean. Peter receives that vision uh, that he's talking about here where the, the tent comes down with all the animals and, and, and the voice says, kill and eat. He says, no, it's unclean. And, and, and the voice says, don't call unclean that which I've called clean. Um, and in fact, that, that particular image is really less about um, unclean foods and more about allowing the Gentiles in because the whole point was this new and everlasting covenant was for everyone. It was universal. It was Catholicos. It was according to the whole. It was for everybody, right? Uh, and of course, so so in the book of Acts, we see um, this council in Jerusalem, which makes a binding decree on, on the people locally there, because uh, that's what the church does. It gives binding decrees that are binding on, on, on the faithful. And this parallels some of the teaching that Paul says, where he talks about you know, not avoiding meat in certain situations so that you don't lead a brother into sin, even though meat that's been sacrificed. Anytime you ate meat back then, if you bought it in the local marketplace, it was probably offered to an idol. Um, he's like, these idols are, are they're stone and wood. So at the end of the day, you can eat that meat because it's offered to nothing. Um, even though other times he talks about idols as being, you know, demons, you know, these, these false gods are, are demons in disguise or whatnot. Um, so this interesting tension point there I've always kind of wondered about. But uh, in general, uh, Paul gives permission to, to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. But because it was a scandal in the early church and people were, were raising questions about, you know, whether these new believers had to become Jewish first, he, the, the, the Council of Jerusalem basically sets out to, to answer that question. It's just don't drink blood, don't do this. The, the, the disciples were Jewish. But as the Catholic Church moved more and more away from the Jewish context, it was easier and easier for them to interpret the Bible through the lens of their own rituals instead of through the lens of what it actually is. Passover is where this came from, right? When we do our communion celebration, it is something we've inherited from Judaism. It was the Passover celebration representing them coming out of Egypt. And you know the story in Exodus, right? Beautiful story. Every single part of that meal was symbolic. They would eat bitter herbs, like horseradish and stuff, like nasty tasting herbs to remind them of the bitterness of the bondage of being in Egypt. They would eat this lamb that had been burned, not boiled, burned, representing judgment. They would eat it because it had its blood spilled so that they would have to be passed over and all this other stuff. They'd eat the bread, they'd take the cup and everything was symbolic. Every aspect of it was symbolic. So Jesus, at that meal, we read about this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the meal where he says, hey, this cup, which had all sorts of other symbolic meaning, he then takes it and tells them what it's really all about. It's the new cup, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. One of the things about the sacraments that is absolutely true, it's absolutely the case, is there is an aspect of symbolism in them, to be sure. Uh, and I'm certainly not denying that, but they are more than mere symbol. Do this in remembrance of me. This, this bread, this is my body broken for you. Do this in rem remembrance of me. I don't think that they understood him to mean that it was physical. And they, they would have at least had a discussion about it. Whoa, hold on. I mean, how could Peter later on, when God gives him a vision and acts, hey, get up, kill and eat. There's like a pig. And he's like, get up and kill and eat. Peter says, oh, Lord, I've never eaten or touched anything unclean. Well, that wouldn't be true if he had had eaten blood and had human flesh. I mean, this is, it's not a clear teaching of scripture. 
It's just a clear teaching of Catholic theology. There is one passage in particular that they like to use, and it is um, in John chapter 6. Now, you might be familiar with John 6. This is the passage where Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you know, you will not, you will not see the kingdom and all this. And he says it seriously, really, like, whoa, he seems really intense. But yes, yes, he does. Uh, repeatedly, we just went over this. Listen, knows this. The bookmarks, the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage. You got to read the whole thing in context, right? The beginning and end help us to see that he is not mean. I'm literally going to make you eat my flesh and blood. So in John chapter 6, verse 35, beginning the discussion, he says this. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Yet how many times is the mass provided? You could, as a, as a Catholic, as a good Catholic, you could get the mass and eat the Eucharist a thousand times, easy. Five thousand times, easy over the course of your life. You're constantly needing it again. It was, at least for a long time in the Catholic Church, it's been considered a mortal sin not to go and experience mass, to skip out on it. <laughs> It is still a mortal sin to miss Mass unless you have a just reason. That's always been the case. So if you miss it because you're sick, if you miss it because you have to care for somebody who's sick, uh, including children, if you miss it because you're traveling and there's not a Mass around you, those are all essentially, forgive the parochial expression, those are all excused absences, right? Um, but if you miss it because you just don't want to go because there's a football game on or whatever, then you are doing what Paul says not to do and neglecting the assembly. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. Not only will you not have your sins covered, you'll actually be incurring more sin upon yourself. But he says you'll never hunger, never thirst. This implies that it's symbolic. I'm the bread of life. You guys, he's never going to hunger. It's not physical bread here. He's talking. It's spiritual, but spiritual and symbolic are not the same thing. Talking about spiritually speaking, I'm the bread of life. This is consistent with all of the, all that Jesus says in John. In John, in chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. He's speaking of a spiritual birth, not a physical birth. And he he's had, talking about baptism, which saves you, according to Peter. Has this long thing where he tries to get Nicodemus to realize it's a spiritual thing. In John 4, he tells the woman at the well, I'll give you living water. And she's like, oh, good, tell, give me this water so I can come back here and fill up my bucket all the time. And he goes, no, I'm, I'm talking about spiritual truths. You know, he's trying to explain to her. And here in John 6, he says he's the bread of life, and come to him, and he'll, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. It's all spiritual truths. And the end of the passage, John chapter 6, verse 63, he reiterates this, in case you thought, he was speaking purely literally. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And again, I pointed this out, but my flesh and the flesh are not the same thing. And I also think it's very telling that since this is John chapter 6, uh, John 6, verse 66. So John 666. After this, many disciples drew back and no longer went about him. He said, after, as, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father grants it because um, right up here they said this is a hard saying who can receive it who can hear it who can who can listen to it right and after this many of his disciples drew back and no longer went, went with him so literally the issue that they left him over was this understanding of the Eucharist uh, that he was going to give them the flesh I will give is my flesh right uh, whoever eats and drinks my flesh will have eternal life. I'll raise him up in the last day, etc. And he's speaking in the future tense in a lot of this stuff here. Um, he's, he's foreshadowing what he's going to do at the Last Supper. Um, and people understand him. Again, first they understand him kind of figuratively, but then they understand him literally, and he just double downs, doubles down on his language. And he's utterly, utterly explicit. And this is in context of this. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Why, Jesus, should I take your words as being spiritual and not just purely physical. Well, the words that he speaks are spirit, and they are life. Spirit and symbol are not the same thing. He's talking about spiritual truths. Now, spiritual truths aren't less than physical truths. In fact, they're elevated as something more important because they're eternal. But yeah. Now, notice this. The Catholic view of the Eucharist 
um, which we could easily spend you know ridiculous amounts of time on. But I just want to give an overview of it. The Catholic view of the Eucharist it is not I just. I do have a whole class on this in the RCA chapters. It's about what the bread and wine become. It's about what the bread and wine do. So they become the body and blood of Jesus. When the, the priest, it's got to be the priest, and he says certain ritualistic prayers, and then wham, like magic, and it is like magic, it's like an invocation of, of like witchcraft almost, I mean there's similarities, and then it becomes this like body and blood of Christ. Well, that's what it becomes, but what it does is it brings the sacrifice of Jesus, a sort of, it's, they're really kind of squirrely in the way they word it, but it's, they don't like the phrase re-sacrificing Christ, mm -hmm. although some have used that phrase, they prefer the phrase re-presenting mm -hmm. the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is presented for you all over again, because since your last Eucharist, Jesus had only paid for the sins you already did. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. Not all over again. It is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, which happened at a particular point in time, but which broke time in a real sense, being represented. It is you being at Calvary. But since then till now, you've sinned more. And so now we're going to pay for this. He's going to pay for the sins that you did again. No. No, it, it's not a continuous credit debit process. <clears throat> it is a process that deepens the well of your soul and allows for you to increasingly accept more and more of the grace of God. At least some of them, because it's not entirely clean and pure. They apply the grace of Jesus Christ little by little by little, which sort of keeps you constantly going back to Mother Church for a constant need for constant <laughs> grace because you are constantly condemned. Hebrews 10, in fact, if you would flip there, I'll give you guys a second. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14, we're going to look at what the scripture says because Hebrews blows the doctrine of grace piece by piece right out of the water. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest, speaking of the Old Testament system, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same offerings which can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the biblical view is this, that you, yes, sanctification is an ongoing process. That's my character transformation. But yeah. the forgiveness of my sins, that was taken care of one time by one offering. He's perfected me forever. Can I say that again? He's perfected me forever. Sort of, but not quite. Because I can tell you right now, in his current state, Pastor Mike is not perfect. Do you honestly believe that nothing about Pastor Mike, his, his ability to love, his ability to be an image of God, an image of Christ, could in no way be above where it is right now? No. Because he needs to continue to grow in holiness. He needs to continue in faith and obedience. And that's what the Christian message is. When I came to know this, it blew me away. My Christian life, before I was studying the scriptures more, reading the Bible and just understanding that Jesus paid it all, before I got that, I would sin and feel so beat up and I would go to the Lord and I felt like I needed the Holy Spirit to sort of remind me that God still loved me, to kind of affirm that he's still there for me, that I'm not lost. And as I studied, I read Ephesians and I read Galatians and I read Hebrews and I'm like, hey, he paid it all. He made a one-time payment for all sin. I hadn't done any of it yet, but it was already paid for. It was already paid for. This is... This is correct, right? But that doesn't mean that you, through the course of your life, are not able to sin in such a way that it takes you away from, from God. Uh, what's that famous passage from Romans? Is that famous passage from Romans 8? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the one thing he doesn't mention there is us ourselves. We can remove ourselves from the love of God. And this is the biblically consistent position that makes sense of all of the exhortations to not engage in sinful behavior given to us by Paul. It makes sense of that passage in, in, in 2 Peter 2.20 that talks about receiving uh, Jesus and having then turn your back on it. It makes sense of that passage from, from Hebrews 6 as well. This is a huge blessing, and man, it's a weight of guilt off my shoulders, but not in Catholicism. Jesus' sacrifice is brought to the altar over and over again, and is a continual reminder of the fact that your sins are not fully paid for. And this is ironic because it's exactly what the Old Testament system was, and it was a lacking system, which is why Jesus had to come and fulfill it. Hebrews goes into this, right? Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. If I hadn't told you this was about the, the Old Testament system, you might have thought this was about Catholic priests. They stand daily, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. That's the they offer unique animal sacrifices. And as God himself tells us, he doesn't actually desire those sacrifices. In fact, one of the reasons that he has the Hebrews go and give sacrifices in the first place, the reason for their exodus from Egypt, the reason why they have to go a three days journey away uh, is because the, the sacrifices they were to offer were going to be abhorrent to the Egyptians because they were sacrificing the deities of the Egyptians themselves because they were falling into the idolatry of the Egyptians. Uh, and so literally part of the reason for those sacrifices was to make sure they understood that these animals were just animals. And every time the priest would offer one of these sacrifices, it would be a new and unique animal. But the Eucharist is not a re-sacrifice of Christ. It is that self-same sacrifice re-presented through time the idea that this man, Jesus, had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. It's a once and for all. I like that phrase. It's in scripture. Sometimes you should Google the Bible, the phrase once for all, and just see the things that pop up because Jesus paid it all. Once, one sacrifice for all, period. But again, salvation is a two-way street and we have to apply that. We have to, as, as Paul says himself, fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. In Roman Catholicism, you can take in the blood of Jesus thousands of times and still go to hell. This because you're free and you can always reject is the teaching of this church, which is that because salvation is a two-way street works to grace. And it's so sad. I can approach the offering of Jesus a thousand times. Yet after the thousandth time, I commit a mortal sin. What mortal sin? Maybe, maybe just lust. And then I die and I go to hell because mortal sin takes away saving grace from your life. It undoes the baptism and undoes everything. If it's truly a mortal sin. This is not the gospel of good. Not just a grave sin. This is sad. And I feel, I feel bad for those who've been uh, given it. <clears throat> well, this is the sin. It's what John says. It's what Peter says. It's what Paul says. So I guess you feel bad for all Christians. Center of Catholic services because they're paying for sins again and again and again and again. And that's why a Catholic uh, gathering is, is a ritual experience. It's not like this where we're going to get edified and learn what the Bible teaches and learn about God and just worship the Lord. Rather, I come to church for a purpose. I come here to get freshly cleansed and then I go away. Then I come back to get freshly cleansed. And this has led, unfortunately, to many Catholics who party Saturday night and then they go to they go to mass Sunday morning, you know, and they're like, oh, I'm getting my fresh forgiveness. And then they go off and they do the thing. They come out, get my fresh forgiveness. And then they're thinking, I've got my. Okay. These are clearly people who are abusing the system. <laughs> these are not 
typical Catholics, uh, even if they're typical Western Catholics, uh, and what they are doing is not okay. Pedigree, man. I got my, my sacrament. I got baptism. I got my confirmation. I got this. So, I, hey, man, I know I'm going to purgatory for a while, but at least I'll make it because they really think works will save them. Well, the, the fourth sacrament is called Faith Without Works is Dead. I'm going to actually go ahead and end it there because this video has gone a lot longer than I expected. Uh, so we're going to stop at 32.22. That should be easy to remember. And I will try and be better at getting these videos up for you guys. Um, I'll go ahead and get this one up tonight. Uh, I had time to get it done this evening, and so I just decided to go ahead and do it. Sorry, my voice was kind of given out at the end here. Obviously, if you have any questions, um, if you have any insights you think I missed, feel free to share those uh, in the comments down below. If you found this helpful, give me a like. Feel free to subscribe. Um, you know, give me give me some feedback down below. Let me know what you found helpful or not helpful. Uh, words of encouragement, of course, are always appreciated. And that being said, I wish you the best. God bless you. God love you. And I'll try and be better about getting these videos out.